I fly a small airplane around and you can see changes in the environment. The, the ice pack uh, at Glacier National Park is a fraction of what it used to be. Not that I doubted that there was environmental damage and climate change, but when you see something with your own eyes, it really, it really brings it home. This is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. In my role, I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. In each show, we bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. My guest today is Bob Fishman. Bob's been in leadership roles with several different energy companies, including Osra, General Atomics, and the Nays Corporation. He's one of those humble, effective leaders you want to work for. And he's been an invaluable source of advice for me over the years while he's been approached by one energy company after another that need a shot of leadership in their arm. And that's the reason I'm excited to welcome Bob Fishman to Scaling Clean. What about your upbringing set you up for this path that you've been on? Well, as you know, Mike, I I started off um, as a naval officer. I joined the Navy when I was 17 and and, and all that training that I went through at the academy and after was all about teaching you to lead in difficult situations with imperfect information and making the right decision for, you know, the mission and your crew. I mean, that's really what the, the Naval Academy training was about. And to train you, you know, eventually to be, you know, captain of a ship. That was sort of the, the, the template that they were working towards. And so you were taught to deal with stressful situations and keep your cool and and make the right decisions. And there were various methods, both reasonable and unreasonable, by which they hammered that into us. Um, But, um, you know, I think it it prepared me well. I remember at Osra one day, uh, things were bad. And if you remember Deborah, who was the general counsel, and Deborah said, how are you so calm with all this going on? And I go, hey, look, nobody's shooting at us. You know, it's like nobody's going to die here today, you know. So let's just sort of keep it in perspective. You know, it's we'll get through it. It's going to be tough. It's going to be unpleasant. But, you know, it's not like the stakes would be if somebody's shooting at you. So going to leadership style, how has yours changed over the years? And I'm interested in knowing what are the three things that you know about leadership now that you wished you knew when you were first starting to manage others? You know, my, my first real leadership position was right out of the academy. I was on a ship. I was a small ship. I was chief engineer. I was 21. I had 43 people working for me. Half of them were older than me. And my direct reports were much closer to my father's age than mine. So it was, it was a challenge. And I think the hardest, the first thing I learned and, the, and, 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 and probably the most difficult thing to, to assess was who talks a good game and who play, versus who plays a good game. How do you know who's really gonna deliver versus who as the Irish would say has a bit of a blarney. 
So who's good at BS and who's good at delivering the goods? And that took a little time to figure out. And I think, you know, I was a little too quick to trust people who seemed friendly and were really good at the gab, the gift of the gab. And um, I learned to be a little slower to judge who I could trust and who I should be a little more wary about. I think that was probably the first major lesson that I learned. I think between my dad, who was also in the Navy and the Academy, I was well prepared on how to get along with the chiefs who were, like I said, my dad's age or the rest of the sailors, as well as the other officers. But, but uh, you know, assessing and understanding who you can count on and, and who you can't is, uh, was, was a hard lesson. So put our listeners in a generic situation, which I, I have seen you encounter in at least two positions where you inherited leadership teams that you were hired to come in and manage. And I remember asking you one time, Bob, how do you know who to keep and who to change out? And you said, that's the art and science. But you were, you, you didn't go into detail here. And I want to hear a couple of usable coaching points for younger versions of you that are running clean economy companies now. Maybe they've been brought in to a company that's got its initial funding secured, their early stage commercial. Now they've got to go into a growth phase. What lessons would you give to people coming in to establish leadership teams that they are now in charge of? Before I answer that, I, I want to agree that with regard to CEOs, some people are better at various phases in a company's development than other phases. Uh, for example, Pete Carwright, who, who founded Calpine, he was the visionary. Pete was really good at that part. But when we became a mature operating company and we, we had to worry about the P&L and cash flow and running and putting in the infrastructure to support a large operating company, you know, he, he wasn't the right guy. So I think it, 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 you know, one size doesn't fit all. I've done a variety of them, uh, I think successfully, but some of them were easier for me to do. I think a, a more mature company was in some respects easier than a startup just because you've got to invent everything from scratch. So, um, you know, I think that getting the right team is is key. I mean, you're only one person as, as the CEO. And unless you have a team that you can trust and is going to deliver the goods for you, you're going to fail. You, you, you know, it's, you're not, it's not a one man band. And so, you know, when I got to Osra, uh, I was encouraged by the board investors to retain the existing team. And I tried to make that work. I assessed who they were. We, as you probably remember, there was not a shared vision between me and quite a few members of the team. They had their, their own agendas. Uh, some thought they should have had my job. Uh, and so they weren't supporting the overall effort. They were supporting their own agenda. And I think if I made any mistakes at Osra, I, wait, I, I waited too long to make those changes. Uh, 
And uh, when I got to NACE, uh, reflecting on that experience, which was you know, very immediately preceding um, when I joined NACE, I didn't waste any time. I you know, changed out the whole senior management team within six months. I mean, it took even even accepting the fact that the position would have to be vacant. Sometimes having the wrong people there is better than having no is, is worse than having nobody there. So let me drill down on that, though. You come in, you're the new CEO with an existing leadership team. How what do you look for in member an individual member of your leadership team to keep or to change out? What are you looking for? Are they playing for the team or are they playing for themselves? And what tells you that? What behaviors, performance indicators, et cetera? I, I, I think it's it's their actions. I mean, if if they don't, you know, I've I've seen direct reports try to uh, you know take all the credit for everything their people d- did. You know, that's that's lousy leadership. You know, if if one of my people does something that is remarkable, they should publicly get the credit for it. And um, so a lot of them was, it was all about them and not about the company's success, um, bad-mouthing other people. I, I think it's, it, it becomes obvious for a while that whether somebody, somebody's agenda is out of line with what the company agenda is. And the direction that you want to take it as a CEO. I mean, at Osra, you know, after a, a while, I realized we had to make some changes in direction. At NACE, I had, having learned on my experience from Osra before I even joined the company, I had the board and understanding with the board as to the strategic direction of the company and uh, buy in by them that I could make the management changes that I saw fit. Whereas at Osra, I didn't do either of those things. Mm. You know, I kind of jumped in without really thinking it through. Cause I, I, you know, was very enamored of the idea of running that company. And I was a, a little bit you know, older and wiser when I got to NACE about making sure that I had the board's backing and alignment on what I wanted to do before I even stepped in the door. Let me follow up on something you said. You came into the from the power sector, and then you moved into solar. When I worked for you, what drew you to renewables? Well, actually, I was doing renewables uh, in the 1980s when I was uh, doing engineering design and project management projects in California. We did uh, the loose solar projects, part of it. We did um, a lot of. Uh, agricultural waste to energy projects. We did municipal waste to energy projects. Uh, we did a lot of cogeneration, which at the time was, con- and still is considered a highly efficient way to use fossil fuels. So, you know, even in the, in the, in the mid eighties, you know, I was doing renewable projects, you know, somewhat because California where I was, you know, our, our business was, was in the lead leadership of, of encouraging renewable projects. The other part of it is, you know, as you know, Mike, I, I fly a small airplane around. And when you do that, you get to see a lot about what's happening with the environment that you don't get to see when you're driving down the interstate 
or you're at 30,000 feet on an airliner, you know, you're at, you know, five or 7,000 feet, you're going, you know, a third of the speed of an airliner and you got time to look around and you see environmental damage, you see or fly through air pollution when you're going into LA and you, you really get a sense of changes. You know, I've been flying for almost 36 years now and you can see changes in the environment. The, the ice pack uh, at Glacier National Park is a fraction of what it used to be. Not that I doubted that there was environmental damage and climate change, but when you see something with your own eyes, it really, it really brings it home. So I think that having had that experience um, when it came time to, to move on from Calpine, you know, uh, I was well primed to, to take on a project or a company in the, uh, in the renewable sector because it was something that I believed was worth doing. Are there ways in which leaning a clean economy company is different than leading companies in more mature sectors? And if so, what are they? I think the basic job of the CEO and basic running of the company isn't terribly different, but there are special challenges. Uh, I think the biggest one is customer acceptance of a new technology. And, and as we experienced at Osra, even though you may have a cus- customer who's ready to, uh, to be your lead customer, um, you don't have a balance sheet to guarantee that you're going to perform. And since at the time we were selling principally to utilities or developers that had to get bank financing, the lack of having that balance sheet to guarantee our product uh, was, was a very special problem, which is the reason we ended up selling the company to, to Ariva is that you know, we had to solve that balance sheet problem. I think the other thing about it is the investors that we had at the company were, you know, they were your classic VCs and they were, you know, they understood, you know, Google. I mean, one of the things that, that I don't know if you've ever heard me say, but I, I know I said it many times, it took more to build Kimberlina in Bakersfield than Google needed to go from startup to IPO. Wow. You know, the clean wow. tech sec by about 50%. It cost us about 30 million all in to build our prototype to prove it. And Google was probably about 20 million from concept to IPO. So when you when you talked about the clean tech sector, at least in the incarnation that we were trying to do it, uh, it's much more capital intensive and takes a long time, longer time than our investors were used to seeing in the, you know, in the software space. And so that, you know, VCs are not patient people uh, to say the least. And so that presented some special challenges uh, and also our customers being utilities primarily uh, are not known for taking technological risk. They're, they're a very conservative, you know, group of people uh, and nobody, you know, they don't, they don't like to take risks on things that haven't been done several times before. So I think those were some of the special challenges that we had. So given what you said about those differences, 
how would you describe the role, not just of the effective CEO, but the effective clean economy company CEO? Well, I think in terms of CEO, period, you know, your, your job is to set the direction for the company, um, assemble the right team, um, define and evangelize the culture and values of the company, and then get everybody in the company, uh, the employees, the investors, your leadership team, everybody needs to buy into that. And you need to develop your people. And you got to get your board aligned with you so they'll they'll be supportive on where you go. And you know, communications is, is I think the key. Um, I think one of the things I, I I did at Osra, as you may remember, and and even more so at NACE was was really be a, a big communicator. You know, make sure that everybody knew what was going on, tell them the truth. It may be unpleasant, but you got to tell everybody what's what's going on. For clean tech, um, I think you just need to be able to take the the setbacks in stride and be prepared to be flexible and regroup. Um, I think the special challenge is there is you're, you're always doing it with very little resources in terms of people and money compared to a more mature company. So a lot of it you, you may have to you know, take on personally, whereas with a larger company, you'd have more arms and legs. If you were an advisor to clean economy investors looking for the right CEO for their portfolio companies, what types of backgrounds would you encourage them to favor? You know, that's interesting you say that. I, you know, I saw in the clean tech sector, you know, my background was engineering, which at Osra turned out to be very useful because I understood enough about the technology to help provide guidance to the development team on which way we, we wanted to go. But there were other clean tech companies that were in the hardware space where, um, you know, they had executives from software companies that the VCs liked, and they were trying to run the company without having a real good idea of the technical aspects of what they were trying to do. And I think, I think having a, a technical background for a technical company is important. Obviously, good communication skills are important. A certain business development acumen uh, because if you can't get those first few sales, you're not going anywhere. What advice would you have for younger Bob Fishmans who are running clean economy companies? I think the first thing you need to accept the fact is you own it. Whatever happens, good or bad, you own it and you just have to deal with it. Um, you don't know it all. You may think you do, but you don't. And you should listen to customers, your people, your investors, because, you know, you really, you know, you really have a lot to learn. I mean, I got to Osra, I was in my 50s, and I still had a lot to learn about, you know, how, how to get this done. So you can't do it yourself. It's not all about you. It's about the company. And... Uh, be prepared to take advice. Hiring is always cited as one of the most challenging parts of leading companies. You mentioned it here. What have you learned about hiring? 
chemistry is important, um, not only with you, but with the rest of the team. Um, do due diligence on someone, you know, get as many reference checks as you can. The best reference checks are the ones that they don't put on the list. Um, you know, I had two experiences where I hired a guy who I had worked with 10 years earlier and had had a good experience. And 10 years later, he wasn't the same guy. The fire had gone out. So, you know, you got to be careful, even if it's somebody you think, you know, I think if you're really good at making hiring choices, you're going to bat about 600. You know, you're not going to bat a thousand. Maybe you may, I think statistically the, the average hiring success is probably closer to 50%. Wow. So, okay. I mean, just accept that. I mean, maybe, maybe you've had a better, uh, success rate, but you know, maybe, maybe if you're really good, you'll get two out of three, but, but if you do, and you'll, you'll know probably in the first few months, don't be afraid to admit you made a mistake and act accordingly, but you know, you're not going to get it right all the time. What is the hardest interview question you ever asked a candidate? I don't know. It was hard, but it, I think it was the one that, that was the most insightful why should I hire you? I mean, you, why, why you compared to anybody else? And uh, their answers are always, always revealing because it tells them a lot about where, you know, themselves and their motivations. Let me just ask you, go back a little bit in history, mentors, who were your big mentors and what did you learn from them? You know, I've had a, a lot of bosses, uh, some were good, some were terrible. Um, you learn a little bit from every person that you work for about what you want to be or what you don't want to be. Uh, and even the bad ones, you might learn something useful about business. I mean, I had one, uh, one fellow, brilliant guy, PhD, nuclear engineering from Virginia and an MBA from Wharton. And he had a, a, the, you know, the EQ of a gnat. I mean, he, you know, if he wasn't screaming, he couldn't finish a sentence without, you know, using a four letter word and at the top of his lungs, he was intellectually brilliant and, and just this horrible guy, but uh, he was a smart businessman. And I learned from him how to evaluate, you know, certain business aspects. I knew I never wanted to behave that way or be that guy, but you know, you learn something, but the one guy who stands out as my, really the guy that I remember saying, I was at Parsons Brinkerhoff and uh, they bought a little consulting company I had. And the CEO of Parsons Brinkerhoff at the time was a guy named Jim Lammy. And Jim took a liking to me right away. He's about know, 20, 21 years older than me. And uh, which is interesting because he's a West Point guy. So I thought, oh, shit, here we go. But he, he you know, he really, we hit it off and, and uh, he became my mentor. And for, gosh, about 10 years. And I remember we had this leadership development program at, 
Ed Parsons Brinkerhoff and they said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be Jim Lammy. He was a tremendous communicator. He was inspirational. He knew how to listen. And he believed in servant leadership before anybody had ever heard of the term. He would, uh, he was based in New York. I was based in San Francisco. Just this is a little anecdote about him. And so typically um, whenever he was in San Francisco, which is about once a month, you know, he would do his business with other people in the company and he and I would have dinner and then he would take the red eye back to New York because he didn't want to waste the whole day flying. So he would take the red eye, even though he was, you know, in his sixties, he was still taking the red eye and getting putting in a full day the next day. And we would have an argument every time at the end of dinner, because I'd say, Jim, I'll drive you to the airport because he didn't have a car you know, he'd taken a cab in. And he says, no, no, you live in the other direction. I'll, I'll take, I mean, here's a CEO who won't let one of his vice presidents, you know, take him to the airport because he don't want, he doesn't want to uh, have him spend an extra half an hour in the car uh, because he thinks that would be an imposition. Um, you know, whereas, um, you know, other CEOs, and I saw this particularly with, uh, with the Japanese uh, when, when uh, I was at NACE because it was a Japanese-owned company. I mean, when one of their senior managers come, they have people carry their bags for them, you know, basically walk them to the car, meet them at the airplane. With Jim, it was, I'm just a regular guy who happened to get lucky. And, you know, he remembered his leadership training from West Point. And he just, he just was, he was the leader, but he wasn't any better than anybody else. But you would do anything for him. I mean, he, he was so inspiring, the most ethical person I ever met. Um, and, you know, just a really smart guy. In closing, let me ask you to just unpack that term servant leadership for people who haven't heard it before, don't know what it is. And I include myself in that. Here's an example. In the Navy, Naval Academy, we were taught that the officer eats after his crew eats. Your primary job is to take care of your people and take care of the mission and lead from the front. But your job it's, it's not about you. It's about you taking care of people and you taking care of the company or the ship in the case of the Navy. And you're, that, that's your job is to, is to serve the people, serve the mission and, and, and enable success. So leaders eat last ethic to quote Simon Sinek. Is that right? Well, that's just how I was taught. I don't know whether Simon Sinek said it or not, but uh, I, uh, that's just how we were taught is, you know, the officers eat last. And that sounds like that served you well throughout your career. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that, that if you want to get loyalty from your people, you know, make them believe, don't pretend, I mean, make them really believe because you do care about their well-being and care about their personal success and that, you know, you're really there for them, that, you know, you, you care. And if you believe that, it, 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 you get a lot of loyalty. This has been wonderful. Thank you. It's so nice to hear your voice again. And what's really wonderful is to get your wisdom again. And I've benefited over the years from it. And it's really a pleasure to, to 
share what I benefited from with a much bigger circle of people. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's 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 my pleasure, Mike. And uh, I don't remember being as insightful as articulate as you remember me being, but I, I'll I'll take I'll take the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trust me, not your recollection. Yeah. <laughs> Our thanks to Bob Fishman, a veteran leader of energy companies. This is Scaling Clean, a production of TigerCom. And I'm Mike Casey. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to our show for free anywhere you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.